Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 24, Sectum Sempra. Exhausted but delighted with his night's work, Harry told Ron and Hermione everything that had happened during next morning's charms lesson, having first cast the Muffliato spell upon those nearest them. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Casper, I live in Medford, Massachusetts. But there is another Medford somewhere else in the country. Yeah, and it's really annoying because sometimes autofill will be like Medford, (laughs) Oregon. And I'm like, no, I don't want to vote in Medford, Oregon. I want to vote in Medford, Massachusetts. Or no, I don't care about ordering this book from the library in Medford, Oregon. So if you live in Medford, Oregon, there are two things you can do. One is pick up a library book for me that I think I sent (laughs) to one of your library branches. And two, it's that you can join the Order of the Sacred Readers, which is run by Monique Pittman. And you can do both those things in a day. (laughs) If you want to join the Order of the Sacred Readers or any of the other now 68 local groups around the world, go to harrypottersacredtext.com slash groups. This week on the podcast, we're joined by Nadia Boltzweber, who I just think is one of the most important theological voices speaking and writing today. She's the author of a number of books, including Pastrix and Shameless. She's a Lutheran pastor who founded an amazing community in Denver, Colorado, called House for All Sinners and Saints. And very excitingly, she has a new podcast with PRX and The Moth, which is coming out in the spring. And just a trigger warning to say that this conversation does involve a discussion of suicide. So welcome to the show, Nadia. Thanks. Happy to be on. We're so glad to have you. So this week, we're exploring this theme of regret. And I think you have a story for us. Well, when I when I read this chapter, the thing that sort of stood out for me was just that scene in the bathroom where Malfoy sees Harry through a broken mirror. And I was recently on this website called Accidental Impacts. And it's a place where people who have caused accidental death or injury go to sort of tell their story and be supported by other people who've done the same. And shockingly, it really is like the only place on the internet that offers this type of counsel and community for people who've had this particular experience. And I read some of the things on there and it was devastating. Like somebody who, you know, didn't see a toddler in their rearview mirror who was playing in the driveway when they backed out or 
in a car accident and their best friend died as a result of, you know, running a stop sign or something. So just really sort of made me think about a situation in my own immediate family where this happened to somebody, one of my siblings, and they were driving down the freeway and there was somebody who was deciding to commit suicide by car and they walked in front of their vehicle and um, my family member killed them. And just knowing the impact of that in their life for the last 25 years has been enormous. And they caused a death, but it was due to no fault of their own. And yet there's so much weight to that. And I mean, I thought of that because of that scene in the bathroom where, you know, Harry thinks Malfoy is trying to do the Cruciatus curse towards him. He he feels threatened and he's in this like hot emotional state. And he does this this curse back at Malfoy, not totally knowing what it's going to do. And it's as though he was like stabbed with a sword and he's like bleeding out of his chest. Like it's it's clearly caused a mortal wound and how immediately Harry's like regretful. And in the story, Snape comes in and like rescues him. Like he does magic and he heals Malfoy, but like it doesn't work like that in the real world, you know? There are people out there who have something that has happened in just this heated moment in their life or just completely as an accident. And they don't have a Snape coming in to do magic to change it. And that they really are carrying the weight of that around for the rest of their lives. It's like this burden that doesn't ever leave them, especially as a pastor and a theologian. I just kind of wonder, where do people go in our culture with these burdens that they have? You know, if you don't have maybe a 12-step program where you can do a fourth and fifth step on it, or you don't have a priest you can do confession and absolution with, where are the places in our world where people can lay their burdens down, as they say in the hymns, and and have somebody name the contents of the burden with them and help them sort of release some of it? It It's just something that I, I see a lot of in so many ways. And it sounds like this website is a place where people can go when you need to talk about an experience with someone, especially a, a rare enough experience like this where it's not easy to find other people who you can talk about it with. And I'm thinking about how Harry doesn't really get that, right? Like once he's cast this spell, you know, Snape is there pretty much immediately. He's looking into Harry's eyes, into his memory. Harry doesn't have a time or, or a place to share his story. And he has to just go straight into action and hide the potions book. And like, he's not he's not able to dig into even what this book is. You know, I can imagine him feeling really betrayed by the book and, and that he might regret using it. But at the same time, it's been so helpful to him, right? Like he's just in such a state of confusion. I think it can be a metaphor for like white supremacy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or other wow. sort of yeah. powers and principalities that some people have access to in our culture that allow them to have dominance over other people and allow them to have a sort of foot up in certain ways that they... You benefit from it, right? But you also... Yeah, but it kills your soul. I mean, and the sort of benefits that we get from these systems, whether it's, you know, male domination or 
you know, heterosexual privilege or white supremacy, the benefits of those things are so intoxicating and so seductive right. that it's hard to question the poison that it's slowly releasing into our system. Um, we don't want to name it for what it is. And and I think that's often the case, right? When we're really confronted with what those privileges looks like, if we are human, which we are, I, my experience is that most of the time, at least, we do regret what has happened. But when it's invisible, that's when we're able to excuse it. You know, we don't have to look at it. We don't have to engage with the truth of what we're doing. I mean, again, I think about another analogy is with the climate crisis, where if I'm not looking at the impacts, and often it's hard to see the impacts up close, it's easy to kind of give myself excuses for actions I have or the lack of action I'm taking, you know, at a political and systemic level. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was one of the compelling things about the series for me is as a Lutheran, like I have tattooed on my wrist, simul justus et peccator, which is Latin for simultaneously sinner and saint. And I think the fact that there's such a beautiful line in there about like, there's not, there's not like good wizards and bad wizards, you know, <laughs> that mm -hmm. we're all, everybody mm -hmm. has a capacity for both of these things. It's more what you do. Right. And you always say that it's not like you're 50% sinner and 50% saint, right? Like we're all 100% sinner and 100% saint, like both are fully true at the same time. I always find that so compelling. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, though it's clear that Nadia read the chapter, perhaps you might not have had a chance. So let us fill you in with our 30-second recap. Vanessa, it's my turn to go first. Will you count me in? Happily. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry tells everyone about, well, not everyone, just Horan and Hermione, about everything that happened, how he got the memory, and now we understand Horcruxes. Then um, he sees Malfoy on the map, and he's like, oh my god, here's my chance, and still feeling the feelings. Um, and he goes, and Malfoy's then is talking to Myrtle, but actually maybe more talking to himself, and, and then they fight. And Harry says, second semtra, and suddenly there's blood that's all over his um, uh, Malfoy, and then um, Snape comes and like makes it better and says, you stay here, and you're in detention forever, and I see into your soul, and Harry hides the book in the room of requirement. You are correct. It is a 33-second recap. <laughs> okay, 30 seconds on the clock for you too, Vanessa. Will you fill in the many gaps gashed open like Draco's body? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. Yes, I will. All right, 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one. So um, Snape says, where did you learn this spell? And Harry is like, I think I read it somewhere, maybe in a library book. And and Snape is like, you're not Hermione. And goes into his mind and it sees that it's his book. And so he sends uh, Harry and Harry steals Ron's book and he goes to the room of requirement and he hides his copy of the book. And then he brings his book. I don't know why I'm spending so much time on this. And Snape gives him detention and he misses the Quidditch match and then he kisses Ginny. <laughs> oh, most important fact is the schmooching. Why was I like, and this is where this book is, and this is it's because it's what I care about the most. I was it's gonna like, say, I think we all know the reason why. Like, where's the book? <laughs> so, Casper, something that Nadia's story really made me think about was that Harry is, right? He's so regretful that he tried. Mm this unpronounceable spell. So first of all, props on Harry for being able to say this word in a stressful moment because sectum sempera is hard. 
But he's carrying around all this regret. And Jenny is the only one who says Malfoy was trying an unforgivable curse. And I think, again, to Nadia's point, what people do in these hot moments, it makes complete sense to me that when he was under threat, this spell that he had read, like, used with your enemies, was at the tip of his tongue. But I guess if I were Harry, I would be running around screaming from the rooftops. He was trying to torture me. Like, this is just self-defense. So I don't understand why he feels so much regret. Well, uh, it's so complicated because I feel like there's multiple layers. Like, there's the layer of self-defense, right? And and in that case, there could have been many other spells that he could have cast. The second layer for me is that I think he was as much surprised by the spell as much as he regretted it. And so I think he's still maybe in some state of shock that he was capable of this to some extent. He's so looking at himself and what happened that he did that he's not even trying to convince anyone of what Draco said. Because, of course, it's only Draco's word against his, and he has just made Draco bleed all over the floor. The sympathy of listeners is probably not going to be on Harry's side in this moment. Maybe. I just, I am so sure that if I got called into McGonagall's office, Mm. the thing I would have said, I was like, it is super important for you to know that he said Crucio. What I do think is interesting and what I think might be part of the regret, is that we hear earlier in the chapter that Harry says that he was sort of excited to try Septum Sempera Mm. next time McLagan came up from behind him. And so what I can imagine is you have a gun in the house and you use it to protect yourself and it turns out that you didn't need it or you didn't mean to kill the person or whatever, but what you regret is ever having had the gun in the house. And I think that Harry, having gone through the mental practice of, like, next time McLagan comes up from behind me, if he hadn't been thinking that thought, he would have done Expelliarmus or one of his more go-to spells. Mm. And so I think that, to me, this is about the regret of arming yourself ever. Yeah. Because Snape comes in and heals Draco, I mean, we we don't really get to see how serious the impact is for Draco longer term. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious to see what would happen if Draco had been very seriously injured, right? Would, Would Harry's compassion grow? Would he still feel justified? Would he be defending the book in the same way if Draco's injuries hadn't been able to be kind of magicked away? I wonder how much regret is shaped by the impacts more than the intentions. You know what I mean? That point really strikes me because my cousin had a baby and she, because there's no proper parental leave, she had to go back to work while she was still exhausted and staying up half the night nursing and doing all of that and drove to work one day and closed the door and opened the back door to grab her purse and saw her baby in the car seat and had totally forgotten to drop him off at daycare, right? And was just like on automatic pilot. It's just interesting to me the extent to which that traumatized and scared her, right? Because nothing bad happened. And, you know, when our friend Lucy told a story like that in Chicago, right? Like these are mistakes that everybody makes. And I'm, I know I have too, right? Where like you look at your phone, even though you're driving and you almost hit someone, but you don't. 
those moments are like beautiful in some ways to me because we get to learn the lesson with without right. the stakes. I mean, it's kind of the proverbial wake up call, right? Right. And I'm wondering now if there's a connection between this scene and this moment and Harry's final choice when the Battle of Hogwarts has that pause that he says, no, I'm not, you know, I don't want everyone to go on fighting. I'm going to go alone. And, you know, I'm stepping willingly to my death. That there's something about having seen the horrors of violence like this up close. I don't know. There's something, there's something connected for me in Harry's not wanting to do this again. I don't want to say he sees Draco as some sort of like innocent victim because he's not. He's not. And yet at the same time, I think you're right. I think it shapes him in some way. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, Expelliarmus becomes his go-to spell. He's trying all sorts of other spells in this book, and he goes back to Expelliarmus. I mean, the thing that I'm wondering also is the way that it changes Draco. Yeah. First of all, there's something really beautiful about the way that Snape nurses Draco to such an extent that it felt like Snape was regretting that this is the world that they live in. And that this, like, child is in this impossible spy situation that he himself is in. You know, like, Mm. I just felt like Snape really cares for Draco and isn't just being a double agent and isn't just keeping his bond with Narcissa, but genuinely cares for Draco. But also, Snape says, if you get to the hospital wing quickly, it won't scar, which just made me wonder. I was like... Will it scar him? Mm. You know, this is a great trauma. And I wonder if the ways that we see Draco behave for the rest of the series is greatly impacted by this moment. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing about this fight scene between the two of them is the actual words of the curse itself, Sectum Sempra. And Sempra means always or, or continuously And sectum, I think, comes from the word which has to do with like a barrier or a wall or a boundary. So it's it's kind of a constant severing, like a constant breaking of a wall. And I I don't know how that might connect to regret, but like it's suddenly a very visual image, obviously what's happening to Draco's body, but also the wall between Voldemort and Harry has been broken, right? Like there's all of these other ways in which these boundaries keep being torn down violently. Well, and I think that the regret of this spell is what would have happened if Harry had put his wand down. If he had said, like, you are crying. Are you okay? That instead, by doing this act of violence, I mean, and you know, and if Draco had put his wand down, I'm not blaming anybody, but anytime you do violence, you are making walls more and more permanent. I mean, like, violence is going to become the only way that you can communicate. And so... Maybe the regret is that now there will always be a wall between them, whereas there was an opportunity here. Harry walked in on vulnerability. I think this is why I love watching videos of tennis players who, like, help the opponent when suddenly they get injured or, like, they jump over the net because they've hit a ball boy or girl by by, by mistake, right? Like, those moments where instead of enforcing dominance and, like, the final crushing blow... It's actually this like helping hand. It's this compassionate, like human to human connection, which in some ways I was kind of struck by Snape in this chapter at the end when he's talking with Harry, because he could have, I feel like, been much, much more 
forceful with his punishment. I mean, 12 detentions is not pleasant, but Harry has just like slashed Draco near to death, right? Like, honestly, I thought there would be more punishment (laughs) in store. And part of me wondered if we've already seen some journeying towards what we, again, what we're going to see at the end of book seven. Because it it feels like he's letting Harry off the hook a little bit. That's so interesting that you see him as letting Harry off the hook. I just don't think that he's letting him off easy because Draco tried to crucio Harry. And so if Snape on any level knows that, if he elevated this to expelment, then Draco would be tried as a criminal. What Harry did is awful, awful, awful. But to me, it's like... Somebody tried to shoot you and you stabbed them back. Not good, but like within that moment, sort of reasonable. Hmm. I mean, the other thing I think at play for Snape is that he's responsible, right? Like he, he of course, is the Half-Blood Prince and, and wrote down that spell with the phrase for enemies, right? Like I, I think maybe that's part of the tenderness in his care for Draco is his own sense of responsibility. He's a channel through which this violence has happened. I at minimum think it behooves Snape to not raise more alarm bells, right? He mm-hmm. doesn't want Draco investigated more for what he's doing. He doesn't want it investigated where Harry got this charm. It behooves Snape to sweep this a little bit under the rug. Mm. I also feel for Moaning Myrtle, who like even while dead has to deal with more trauma. I'm like, God, death should at least absolve you from that. (laughs) Or at least, like, can she get the guy at some point? Like, there's just this, oh, this everlasting longing. I mean, we should talk about that moment, right? Like, there's a lot in this chapter about Harry and Ginny. And Harry is trying to think about, will Ron be angry? You know, will she get back together with Dean because he's off the Quidditch team? Like, there's a lot that he's thinking about Ginny. And at the end, it's this kind of, like, spontaneous, undiscussed kiss that comes from Harry to Ginny. She runs into his arms. That's true, but it could be a hug. But like, you know, sometimes you do take a risk, right? You tell someone you like them or you kiss them, right? If it's a romantic moment. In front of 50 people. Well, that's the thing. If this had gone wrong, my God, it would have been a regrettable thing. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that regret is not something that you can plan to avoid. The only way to avoid it is never to take any risks. And that's not living. So that there's something about regret being an inevitable part of our experience because we live. And I just thought this was such a sweet moment of demonstrating that. And and luckily it works out for both of them. So go team. (laughs) Um, The line at the end of the chapter tickles me to no end. Basically, maybe they would stop kissing for long enough to chat for five seconds. No, that is just pure makeout for the rest (laughs) of the night. Yeah. (laughs) The thing that I was wondering about is whether Ron now regrets having dated Lavender. Because I think that he never would have gotten the confidence to date Hermione if he if, if he, he didn't. didn't. And this was the first time that I was like, ugh, is this why men talk about, like, sowing wild oats? It just feels so, like, exploitative that Ron very much used Lavender in order to feel on an equal sexual playing field with Hermione. Oh, I did that when I went to college. Like, I wanted to, like, make out with a guy— 
and maybe sleep with him before I got to college. And it's such a, it's such a twisted thought, but at 18, that's how my brain worked. So a hundred percent, I think that's going on. But I wonder if Ron now regrets it. If Ron's like, God, I hurt her. This was so uncomfortable. Who cares? Or if he's like, well, I had to hurt her, but you know, Hmm. at least now I've snogged a similar number of people to Hermione. I mean, I think the worst thing is that I don't even, I don't think Ron's even thinking about Lavender. Unless she's in front of him and it's awkward. Yeah. It's it's sad. It is sad. Okay, so I have a weird question for you. The thing that stood out to me, and literally five times during this chapter, is climbing through the portrait hole. It shows up over and over again. We see, obviously we've talked about how Ginny and Dean, the relationship ends because of that moment. Katie Bell returns, and it happens right in that doorway. Getting Ron's potions book happens in the doorway. Walking in and out to find out about the Quidditch game at the very end of the chapter, right? Harry finds out that Gryffindor has won the cup amazingly. And, of course, at the very end when he then steps out again through the door with Ginny after their first kiss. So there's something about leaving and entering and, and this threshold moments, which for me felt so connected to regret because regret is about a state of life that has changed or, or, or a beginning or an ending, right? Something has changed, which we then wish it hadn't. I, I don't know if it struck you as well, but I, it just was so geographically represented in the entering and the climbing. Because climbing isn't just a doorway. You're not like walking through it. There's an active difficulty that you have to overcome. Yeah, that did not strike me, but I love that. (laughs) Something that's interesting about regret is that some people will say sort of proudly, I don't live with regret. I just move forward. Whenever anyone says that, I'm like, is that a good thing? Like, I don't think (laughs) that we should live with shame. I don't think that we should live, you know, beating ourselves up for our mistakes. But regret to me means that you have looked at something and have tried to change. And I regret so many things that now I know how to behave in ways sometimes to prevent regret. I mean, regret is inherently bound up with hindsight. There's something about time that sits in regret. I'm thinking about the mirror of Erised for some reason. And and I'm thinking about Harry looking at his parents. Both Harry looking at them, of course, there's no regret because there's nothing else he could have done. But I'm also thinking about the ways in which James and Lily are looking at Harry. And what strikes me now is this total absence of regret. I could so easily imagine parents looking at a child that they died defending, but still they must have felt in some way that they fell short. Even with that ultimate sacrifice, they they weren't able to save, give him the life that they would have wanted. And yet there's this total regretless love that is just shining through from this image yeah, I guess I want to know is like, how can we look at our life and the mistakes we've made? Like, should we look at them with regret? Sometimes regret doesn't help, you know, and it just keeps us stuck. And, and I'm I'm hesitant about it. So I guess I think that the difference, there's a difference between regret and lament. That like, I lament the fact that I look at the children in my life and I'm like, you are going to have to suffer. Like people are going to break your heart. You're not going to get everything you want. And none of those things are regrettable. They are lamentable. So I think that we should try to transition regret to lament when it doesn't motivate us to change. Oh, I love that. Because if regret can lead to a changed action and you can do it differently, awesome. And if regret can't take you there, 
take it to lament so that, you know, it's actually moving through grief and whether that's through movement or music or conversation or stillness, right? Like grief can ultimately be at least cyclical, if not healing. And regret just feels like this stuck place that I, I love that move. Yeah. That it's not something that we just have to keep quiet in ourselves and, and hidden. Vanessa, the one thing I regret actually in this chapter, looking back on it, is I wish we'd see more of Neville. I was wondering where Neville and Luna are. Right? Like they've yeah. been so important to us and, and they're kind of disappearing in, in this moment in the narrative. And I just, I care about them, obviously. But more importantly, like, I want to know how are they growing and like, what does this mean to them? And how are they stepping into leadership in new ways? And uh, yeah, I just, I wish we got to see more of them at, the, at this point. And it made me regret on Harry's behalf that he didn't get to go play Quidditch. Because if he was walking down to the Quidditch pitch, we would have seen Luna and Neville and we would have had a moment to check in with them. But because he's not there, we don't get to see them. I had the exact same thought. I was like, (laughs) is Luna wearing her lion hat? Is she commentating again? (laughs) Like, I have questions. Oh, boy. A hundred percent. So, Casper, it is now time for the spiritual practice of Pardace, and I got to pick the sentence. Mwahahaha. I actually picked part of a sentence because it's a long sentence. So the part of a sentence that I picked is, perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head mm. to make it more distinctive. Dum, dum, Dumb. It's going to be important later. <laughs> so, Casper, the first step of Pardes is shot. And do you want to tell people what the intended meaning of the sentence is? Yeah. So Harry is trying to hide his potions book and he's found his way into the room of requirement, which because he needs to hide something has become this enormous storage house. And Harry is looking for places to put the book and he sees this old wig and on top of it is the tiara. Yes, and he tries to hide the book. He's worried that he won't be able to find it again, which I'm not sure. I'm like, does Akio not work in the Room of Requirement? But whatever. Haven't you read A History of Magic? (laughs) (laughs) Full disclosure, I have not read Hogwarts A History. And that was me trying to shame you for saying the wrong title. Successfully. (laughs) But yeah, he wants to make sure that he's going to be able to find the book again. So he like decorates it. Okay, step Two is remez. And in remez, we pick one word from the sentence and try to trace it throughout the other seven books. So, Casper, what word would you like? I'll read you the sentence again. Perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive. I'm suddenly thinking of the different statues that we encounter through the books. I mean, obviously, immediately thinking of the ministry where we have those four statues that come to life and the ways in which the statue embodies the power structure of the wizarding world and how it will change. But where else do we see statues during the seven books? I mean, the gargoyles that let you in and out of Dumbledore's office are statues. I know that the suits of armor are not statues, but they're similar, right? And they inevitably start fighting on behalf of Hogwarts, which I think is a really beautiful image of like Hmm. your art almost feeling protective of your house. And sometimes they give you away, right? Because Harry runs into them or they crash and they clang and Filch is able to find him. 
there's a statue that the twins use to exit and enter into Hogsmeade. To Hogsmeade, like, yes. What's his name? Jeffrey the Smarmy or something? Well, that's another thing. Like a statue is an immortalization of a human story, right? And so... Ooh, which is so interesting about suits of armor, right? It's not at all about the people within. It's just about the fact that they are warriors. Ooh. There's also that really beautiful statue of Lily James and baby Harry in the middle of Godric's Hollow that Harry and Hermione confront when they go to Godric's Hollow <sighs> in book seven. And it to muggles like you and I, it would just look like a war memorial. But to witches and wizards, I mean, it's also a war memorial, but it includes this sacrificial trio. Well, and I'm now seeing this connection between, you know, the boy who lived, the chosen one, all these names given to Harry, and then the tomb of the unknown soldier, especially for the Great War, the First World War, at least around Britain, a lot of the symbolic statues are not for a named person, but for the easy to be forgotten, right? Because so many people died and they couldn't always find the bodies, that there's something powerful about naming the nameless and so we don't know what statue this is in the room of a requirement. But yeah, I'm just suddenly connected to that as well. Well, and the way that I interact with a lot of statues in my life, like a lot of fountains, they end up just being like meeting places. Right, right. Like the, I'll meet you in front of the John Harvard statue. And we don't end up spending a lot of time thinking about what it is that they symbolize. So they are simultaneously like objects of immortality, but I think also objects of forgetting yeah i mean the john harvard statue is famously not even of john harvard right it's of some random guy that the sculptor used many centuries later okay so step three of pardes is drash in which we ask ourselves if this were our liturgy what lesson we would want to pull from it and the sentence fragment one more time is perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive. There's something really interesting to me about the fact that Harry is manipulating these objects to help him to remember where the book is. And he doesn't know that what he's moving is more powerful and more dangerous than he could ever imagine. And I'm not a scientist and, and I, I'm not a you know a geographer, but if you think about geoengineering as, as a classic example, right? Like, We try and stop one problem by making massive changes. You know, if you think about putting giant mirrors in the sky to stop greenhouse gases being kept within the atmosphere because we're going to reflect sunlight back. We have no idea what some of those major changes in our environment will do to us. Or, or, yeah, we're just going to cut down this whole bit of the forest. Well, suddenly the whole ecosystem's changed. Like, there are things that we do where we just don't fully understand the magnitude of the of the impacts because often it's not just about the individual impact. It's about all these feedback loops, right? Like that one sets off the other, which sets off the other, which sets off the other, and, and you could never have planned for them. So I guess there's something about the humility we should have and the the real care that we should take before we make changes in the world around us, especially the kind of the, the physical geography. How about you, Vanessa? The thing that I have been thinking a lot about lately is hope in the face of despair, like impeachment trials and the primary, right? Like it is really hard for me to stay hopeful or interested in these things. Like I just feel like everything is so corrupt that I'm like, why are we doing this? And I guess I would talk about how 
we got to do what we have to do to stay interested and hopeful in the face of despair, even if it's just like putting a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara mm-hmm. on it, right? Like, I'm really trying to force myself to stay engaged. And I think that we have to find as many ways not to stay engaged, but to stay hopeful. I mean, I feel like that's what in America, what late night TV hosts are, right? It's like bringing you news with comedy. And in the UK, it's often panel shows like it's quizzes about the news. And then actually you're kind of learning something about the news, but it's through comedy. I think that's a lot of how many of us get on news, actually. And I think nowadays that's okay. Mm. Like Mm. it can feel so despairing that I think that if you have to perch a dusty old wig or tarnished tiara on something, I'm like, do you know what? Do what you got to do. Just make sure it's not a Horcrux. (laughs) Good hot tip. The final stage of Pardes is sewed in which we ask ourselves if this sentence has a secret to offer us. And so I will read it one more time, and then we'll see if a sewed emerges. Perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive. I had a sewed. Whoa. What was it? He thinks he's doing it to make the book more distinctive, but this moment actually also makes the tiara more distinctive, which makes it easier for him to find in that scene in book seven where Draco and Crabbe and Goyle and everything catches on fire and they grab the diadem. I guess the thing that's striking me is perched is a a verb that to me suggests aliveness, right? Like that, that, diadem like that tiara it's alive because it has a piece of soul in it like it's actively sitting there we know that these pieces of soul can have their own intentions and desires i don't want to say that the tiara is the thing that draws harry to put the book there but there's something active there's something alive in this piece of language which is really new to me hearing it like this This week, we're hearing from Rachel Friedenson in our voicemail, and she's talking about the end of book five from a little while ago. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name is Rachel. I'm in Minnesota. There's a line in chapter 37, The Lost Prophecy, that has always resonated deeply for me. It's after Phineas Nigellus goes to Grimmauld Place to confirm that Sirius is dead, and Harry thinks he would walk, perhaps, from portrait to portrait, calling for Sirius through the house. Now, I have a wife and an anxiety disorder. The two aren't really connected. The anxiety predates the wife. But for the last two years, we've been living halfway across the country from each other because of our jobs. We see each other roughly every month, but sometimes we can go six to eight weeks in between visits. This line echoes through me every time she or I leave each other. The first couple of times I couldn't even remember what it was from until I tracked it down here. It echoes because this is what I do. I often end up walking from room to room in my apartment, marking the fact that she was here and now she wasn't, and that, or that 12 hours before I was in a different set of rooms with her and now I'm not. It was a way of dealing with my anxiety by becoming reacquainted with what my life looks like when she's not here, as well as the anxiety of not knowing when we'd be together again. She's actually moving back in with me this weekend, which I thought was serendipitously timed with our reading of this line in chapter 37. So I'd like to bless anyone who is missing someone or feeling the grief of absence for whatever reason. I hope that the rooms in your house bring you solace rather than increased grief, and I hope that you and your loved ones will be together again soon. 
Thanks for the podcast. It's gotten me through some tough personal times, but and it's always a bright spot in my week. Rachel, that is such a beautiful blessing and such a, I'm just, it's such a vivid voicemail. Like I can, I can see you walking through those rooms. And I think for any of us who have been in a long distance relationship, like that feeling of an absent presence is so familiar. And I hope that being back together is wonderful. Because I know sometimes re-cohabitating can be difficult. It takes at least a month to get used to it again. Yeah. It's like, ugh, you, you have your own needs. You're not just this idealized version of yourself that I remembered when you were not here. Exactly. (laughs) So Casper, it is now time to offer a blessing. Who would you like to bless? I want to bless Snape. There's something in this chapter, which to me was very gentle or tender, both in the way that he cares for Draco and in my opinion, the way in which he limits his um, punishment of Harry. He's not even invading Harry's memory, maybe more than he needs to, that there's something restrained in him. And I guess I hope I can bless Snape and bless anyone who holds power and holds responsibility and who uses it with discernment and who, who mediates any, whether it's boundary keeping or whether it's punishment with with a gentleness as much as possible. How about you, Vanessa? I would have blessed Katie Bell. Yes. Because she comes back and I was like, oh, girl, I did not know how much I missed you. She's like, this is everything that happened. Sure. Ask me anything you want. Sorry, (laughs) I don't remember that. Gotta go. Wouldn't put it past McGonagall to put me in trouble, even though it's my first day back. Like, (laughs) she is not, like, slinking away from the spotlight, nor is she seeking it out. She's just, like, glowing and effervescent. And then she comes back to the team. And the team is, like, better than ever because they're so excited to have leader Katie Bell back. And I just think she is a rock star and I want to be her in my next life. Yeah, we all know who's the real captain of the Quidditch team. Let's be Katie honest. Bell for the win. That 100%. is why they're like, Harry, you can't play. Whatever. We'll win anyway. <laughs> Katie's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you don't have a local group near you, you can join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We have new and exciting perks. We always love reading your iTunes reviews and listening listening to your voicemails so please send them in next week we'll be reading chapter 25 the seer overheard through my favorite theme of indignation this episode of harry potter and sacred text is produced by not sorry productions our executive producer is ariana nettleman our associate producer is ariana martinez and our music is by ivan paisau and nick bull we are newly distributed by the great network acast and we are so excited to be with them Thanks to Nadia Boltz-Weber for joining us today as a special guest, to Rachel for her voicemail, and as ever, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Corsell. We'll see you all next week, everyone. I mean, we'll talk to you. We won't see you. Uh, That's true. Or at least we'll be talking at you. I hope you talk back when you listen. Yeah. Shut up, Casper! Exactly. Exactly.